Hi, this is Reese Roper, and you're listening to our newest podcast ever. Hey, everybody, this is Andrew and John, and we love this podcast because it's about us. Welcome to Magnify Pod, the second season, our newest podcast ever. And honestly, I'm very interested in today's guest. I'm Andrew. I'm John. And this is our podcast. And this has been a long time coming for us. It's true. We have been talking about getting hashtag Kravak back <laughs> since, I don't know, maybe the very, days. very early days of the podcast. So yeah. this is uh, going to be an honor to yep. be able to sit down and talk with him about um, his career, his work with so many iconic punk bands, but also his brand new solo record mm-hmm. that just came out late this last year on Porterhouse Records. Which he owns. Which he owns. And we're going to get into the record with him yeah. a little later when when we interview him. But I'm excited. John, you, you told me off mic that you're pretty nervous because <laughs> this guy's he's legit. He's legit. He's he's a legend in reality and also just on our pod. Um, that <laughs> yeah. now when we uh, talk about Steve Kravak, we can say, get Kravak back and have it refer to our podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, because the hashtag Kravak back hashtag doesn't actually make sense. <laughs> well. Because it like we didn't have him back from, I mean, well, I guess we maybe we were talking about getting him back to recording. Yes. You know. That was its origins was we were lamenting that uh you know not that we don't enjoy some of the mxpx records that followed his time as their producer but right we were like we just need to hashtag get kravak back get some of that tight pop punk sound back in there he wasn't up Um, for any of this messing around (laughs) not even not even like just the sound so much as it is some fucking brevity for christ's sake you know (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) you know uh, no yeah but get rid of the get rid of the riffraff. Let's that's right. let's that's right. let's you know, his album is also a tight eleven tracks. Yep. So it's he knows he knows he knows how it's done. He knows how it's done. He knows the deal. So John, I think this is enough wasting time. No one yeah. wants to hear any more from us. No, Kravak so, would be like, let's cut this down. Let's uh, streamline <laughs> this thing. <laughs> yeah, we. Do we really need, you know, 20 more minutes of Andrew and John? I don't I don't think so. Let's get so to it. Let's get to our interview with recording legend, producer, engineer, artist Steve Kravak. Um, all right, today on the pod, we welcome Steve Kravak. He is an RIAA gold producer, engineer, mixer, and composer. You know him from his work with bands like MXPX, Blink-182, Less Than Jake, and Slick Shoes. Now you can add solo artists to his resume. 
Under the moniker Stephen Bradley, Kravak released an album entitled Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears on Porterhouse Records in September of 2019. It's a hooky power pop record with bright guitars, lush harmonies, and fantastic guest performances. You can purchase a copy of the album on colored vinyl or digital download at porterhouserecords.com. Steve Kravak, welcome to Magnify Pod. I'm here. <laughs> we, John, John and I have been talking uh, about you uh, specifically on this podcast for a very, very long time. We, um, in our early days of, of the podcast, we um, were talking about MXPX and when we got to albums like Life in General and Slowly Going the Way of the Buffalo, which we feel like are some of the like gold standard, and in your case, literal gold standard of <laughs> of pop of pop punk. And and so when we looked forward at some of the of some of MXPX's records, we're like, not that, that we didn't like the records, but that we we loved specifically what you did on those records. And so we came up with this, what we deemed as a hashtag Kravak back, get Kravak back, get him on these <laughs> records, um, bring, bring your, uh, your style of, of tightening up the records and, um, and your sort of ear for the music. Um, so we, we are happy to have, Hashtag Kravak back, in, at least in this situation on the podcast. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's great to be. It's great to be here. <laughs> um, yeah, those those records, um, they kind of stuck around, you know. Yeah. Yes. And um, that doesn't happen much anymore because, um, well, it's just kind of the way we consume the music now. Yes. Uh, and the way music is marketed. Um, I think that we've, in a, in a way, we've kind of gotten back to like a more of a singles-driven business through through digital. You know, oh, we'll drop a mm. single here, we'll drop a single there. Right. Mm. Whereas, um, you know, when we're we're, we're writing full lengths, we're talking about taking a certain amount of time to put that together and a certain time to record that, and then prepare it for marketing, and then to work that record, and then to start the cycle again. So you might be talking about you know, an 18 month or 24 month cycle for a record. And, um, that has, you know, that's gone to the wayside, uh, a little bit just out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if that has to do with how those records have hung around or, you know, I, I just think back then there was more of a chance to sort of, uh, absorb what was going on maybe. Yeah. Do you think there was something specific in, how you approached those punk records in those days, um, you know, about the process that led to so many of them becoming classics of the pop punk genre. Like, do you attribute that to something specific about how you approach them? I, I think if you listen to those two records, those MXPX records, like a lot of work went into them. <laughs> yeah. And, and it sounds like it, like it doesn't sound like they were ideas that were just kind of thrown together. You know, right. there were there were ideas that took time to develop. In the case of the Buffalo record, there was um, there was a full slate of pre-production sessions that went along with that to kind of get the songs down and figure out whether we had the right stuff. Right. 
done. And in the case of the Life in General record, the band had actually recorded right. those songs yeah. um, for a release. But yeah, but then they decided that maybe that that wasn't what they what they envisioned, you know. Right. And I had been um, helping them out with this Cooties record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that was sort of like a, it's just like an offshoot band, you know, like a side project that happened to be on in the Tooth and Nail family. And right. my Carrera was involved in that. And Tom, Tom, I guess Yuri was involved in that. And Daly Ob was involved in that, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, um, so they kind of called me in to help, help them with that. I think that through that process, they kind of could see that the way I did things was maybe a little bit different or had a different energy to it. So they thought, well, maybe we should try applying that to what we're trying to do with this MXPX record. And the record itself, I think we took about, I think all in all, it was about 25 or 26 days to make, like to record it and mix it. Um, So we didn't, uh, we didn't rush through it, but we kept things moving along too we were also kind of trying to figure out how to get next level on it. The band had already had a few records out um, three, I believe three full lengths at that point in an EP. So folks were starting to, you know, hear about this band, um, but they hadn't, they hadn't made the breakthrough and the life in general record really sort of helped them make the breakthrough. Um, And I think that because we, took time to develop the ideas we had, really refine the performances and just get it to a place where, just get it to a place where it was sort of like explosive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that was what set it apart from the records that came before it. And I, I can't really speak to the records that came after it. The, the, the consensus I think really is that we just put the time in on those yeah. recordings and also, I think the guys have been sort of used to working in a situation where they're like, okay, well, we'll track that. Okay, that sounds good. Let's start right. overdubbing as opposed to like, okay, well, maybe we should look at like what this arrangement is or these parts or I think I was probably one of the first people that they worked with where it was like, okay, well, let's try something else here. Let's try this part here or this strumming pattern needs to be here, hmm. um, you know, and so getting those lessons into the fold, I think also kind of helped the way those songs are arranged and the way they are presented. And so it's they, for that reason, they probably sound a little bit more impactful than what that came before. But, but also like Mike wrote better songs for that record. You know, yeah. like um, I think that after he had about two or three records under his belt, was building more confidence as a writer um, that he was willing to, kind of put himself out there a little bit more. Um, there's some songs there that I think maybe he might not have written earlier on that ended up being on those, on those records. So I, I think that it's like growth from a lot of ends, you know, from, from the band's end, from the writing standpoint, from the uh, production and engineering standpoint, from the mixing standpoint. And when you are stacking up that many things and changing them, then the outcome should sound drastically different. <laughs> One would hope sure. anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Do you, so, do you so think maybe that was, was part of it? Yeah. Do you think that was the same 
general approach for say less than Jake, where you also took them from the sound of losing streak to the huge upgrade into hello rock view. Like, was it a similar approach for bands like that as well? A little bit um, on the, on the hello rock view record. I kind of split a lot of the duties with Howard Benson who produced okay. and I engineered. So, but, but Howard like would take, he liked to kind of work on the vocals and he'd like, Oh, set me up with a vocal sound and I'll work with the guys. But then when it came to guitars, he'd go just deal with the guitars, cut all the guitars, cut all the guitar parts, find the tones Hmm. and make that happen. You know? So there was a lot of like in that particular record, there was a lot of back and forth. Um, But also that was an interesting record in the sense that the lesson Jake had been on tour, they'd been supporting losing streak for almost like, 18 24 months like they hadn't Mm. been home yeah and so when it came to making that record they were like okay well yeah we know you have to make another record but uh we're just going to do it here in gamesville we don't want to go anywhere else so we actually had to sort of bring a studio to them and we um we used a small recording facility called mirror image that was in gamesville but then we brought up a lot of a, a lot of equipment we just sort of rented and brought in and I brought a lot of my gear in. Howard brought a lot of his gear in. So we kind of supplemented and we kind of created a world-class studio in in, Gaines, in Gainesville. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I think that sonically, yeah, um, the 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 sounds on that Rockview record. That's pretty much those are all my tones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that I work that I work to build up, and even like the vocal sounds, I can remember going through. They had. I brought in a couple of microphones for vocals, but they had a few microphones, and I went through everything that I. I must have tried like six vocal mics on Chris's voice, and and I said, uh, I said it's this microphone. It's this Rode like four hundred four or two hundred two or whatever. It's just kind of a junky condenser microphone, a cheap condenser microphone. But mm-hmm. put it on Chris's vocal, and that was the best sounding one, and. Uh, so even Howard was sort of like, well, after recording, he sort of looked at the microphone and was like, is this, this is our vocal sound? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this is our vocal sound. I've, I've done the math. Yeah. And he's like, okay, <laughs> not really trusting me. And then when we got to LA to mix the record, uh, and Chris Lord Algy was mixing it. And uh, so I, I just dropped by the studio one day to kind of see how things are going. And, and Chris was like, Chris Lord Algy was like, dude, these sounds are great. <laughs> This vocal sound is great. And Howard comes up to me and goes, that was the vocal sound. <laughs> you, <laughs> you got well, it. This, this okay. is, you know, you, you, you know, you talked about like some of these albums that, that stick around and um, life in general and slowly as far as like MXPX goes, but uh, Hello Rock View is consistently regarded as one of the most uh, important or most significant third wave ska records. And it, that's another record that endures and less than Jake and, and ska is kind of make, make, they're making, it's making a resurgence, but also you look at, you also released burnout by slick shoes in 1998. So you had slowly hello rock view and burnout in 98. What was your, what was that? that I mean, in addition to, other records what was that year like for you you must have been like going nuts yeah i think it was probably just a blur actually back then there was a lot going on and um 
you know, some, some projects we were doing like the, like the burnout record and, um, and like in general, we did at West beach in LA, uh, that, uh, less than Jake record we did out in, uh, in Gainesville, Florida. Um, I was doing some stuff for tooth and nail up in Seattle at the time. Did you, uh, was it outer circle? Cause you did, I think outer circle, I think outer circle, we did at West beach. Okay. Um, but I, I just recall like bouncing all over the place at that time. There was, yeah. there was, cause everything was kind of blowing up too. You know, that the no effects record was blowing up. The rancid right. record was blowing up. Uh, um, the offspring was blowing up like that whole sort of like era of music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was just like, it, it was pretty much as like as fast as we could record them and press them and put them out there. Like they would sort of hit, like, mm there were, there were people buying those records, you know? And, um, I, I know that we don't have sales that support the industry like that anymore. Like those are, those days are gone, you know? Right. Um, so I guess you kind of got to look back and, and sort of be happy and go, okay, well, you know, during the, during that time when it was, when, when we could make records and there were budgets and we were selling records, that we struck while the iron was hot and we made a lot of good records at that time. You know, we weren't dilly dallying. We were trying to do the best work that we could. And so that's something to look back on, I think with, uh, with regard and, and, and to say that, um, you know, we held the bridge, we held the, we held the bar high, you know, and we weren't, we weren't making a lot of excuses. We were making records as I sometimes like to say. Mm, right. I like that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you, so like, for context, you know, a uh, gold record sold would sell five hundred thousand, and now mm-hmm. you see you see labels putting out runs of pressed records in like f- quantities of five hundred, and yeah. and so like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm a I'm a big vinyl collector, so I'm I'm still a physical uh, media collector i love having actual physical records but that's in and you alluded to it with like with streaming um and the the kind of disposable potentially disposable nature of music as opposed to like if you you own something you purchase it you have a a connection with a physical the physical object i mean i remember pouring over lyrics booklets and looking at all the pictures and having this sort of connection to the item. But now if you're just clicking in Spotify, you, it's just, it's sort of disembodied. It's not connected to anything. Um, Right. Do you think what, do you think there's any, validity to that or how do you think that oh no definitely and i i think that folks that i think that folks that grew up with physical product in their life um still want that as part of the music experience right for those that have grown up without that i mean in a way that isn't that just sort of like asking well go use a like a rotary phone you know like (laughs) a rotary well you know they they look at it but they're probably not sure how to operate it yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, there it is. Just it is what it is. Like we're not in Kansas anymore. So for for some folks, I I don't think that they specifically see a drawback in having things presented solely in a digital way or an online way, whatever you want to call it. 
um, just because that's not part of their collective experience. But for folks like us who are maybe just a little bit older and have gone through uh, those eras where that was, you know, important um, was, uh, you know, to, to them, it, it, it's a different thing. I mean, when I was growing up, they had eight tracks <laughs> and right. cassettes were, cassettes were big, you know, yeah. but vinyl, vinyl was the king. Yeah. And, and I can remember when, you know, the compact disc came along and how they kind of just sort of vinyl was sort of killed off overnight. And it was, this is the new format. And it wasn't one of the, one of the reasons I think that, that the labels were the big labels where they were happy to kill off vinyl was because it costs so much to ship. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And even, even at the end of the vinyl runs, um, major labels were trying to figure out how to make records that sounded good, but were thin, like really thin. And they, they would, they would weigh less. So they mm. figure, well, if it's 10 pounds less to ship, that's great. Well, when CDs came along, they sort of had part of the solution there. They were like, well, we can charge more for this because it's like this new digital technology, but it costs less to ship. Our margins just went up. And then right. they decided since we're, since we're writing all the contracts again for compact disc, now we can write in packaging deductions because we never used to do that before. And mm. so every artist would get hit with a packaging deduction off of what, like whatever came back in off the, the, the record sales, mm. the labels wouldn't support, they would, the labels would charge that back as opposed to, uh, or, or take a reduction for it, you know, as opposed to saying, well, this is the cost of doing business. So all of a sudden the labels were scooping up an extra 10 or 15% there too, through via packaging deductions. Mm. So the CD revolution was, you know, pretty, a pretty good deal for them. And, you know, you'll even hear people now talk, and this is not to sound like I'm a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, because I'm not, but um, there are those in the industry right now who own record stores and are, you know, buy, buy records for their customers. And they literally say that right now that the majors are trying to kill off the physical business once and for all. Ugh. And, 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 what is just one of the things that just happened is this, uh, uh, there's a company I know about this cause I run a label, but there's a company, I think it's called direct shot mm-hmm. and direct shot basically went to the majors and said, well, we'll do all your distribution for you. And all the, la- all the major labels says, okay, that sounds pretty good. Let's do it. So they all signed agreements. Well, turns out direct shot can't distribute music and people aren't getting records and it's been going on for, you know, four or five months now, six oh, months that, People aren't getting records. There's a story about it in Rolling Stone today. The direct shot sent a pallet to a record store with one bag on it with one CD in it. Hmm. They didn't really see the stores. The stores were not getting their shipments of records for the holidays. Yeah. Geez. One of the biggest times of the year. So here's, um, here's the majors. Here's the majors saying, oh, well, we know what's best for you. But at the same time, they've decided, well, we're going to jump in bed with these distributors that don't really know how to distribute records. And we didn't really know that. And you just kind of scratch your head and go, you guys are in charge of this? Like, it's right. incredible. <laughs> it's totally incredible. So, so where the industry is at right now, it's sort of, it's in a bad place. It's been made worse by those that are in charge. Yeah. And, 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 and really, like in the last six months, the only folks that are getting records to stores are independents are small labels that work through one stops 
and smaller distribution systems like my label Porterhouse. Right. And we're actually still, we're still able to get, you know, products to stores. My, my sales haven't been affected. My label sales haven't been affected, you know, but I'm, I'm hearing from other folks and they're saying this, that this issue is, has turned the industry upside down. And now we're coming towards record store day. Right. Uh, in a couple of months, and people are wondering whether that is going to be completely collapsed as well. Well, can so I, uh, there's, there's a lot going on. Can I toss in a li- another little conspiracy? Not that you're saying, but this this fire out in in California yeah, at, at Apollo Masters, yeah. like that that's an, an unmitigated disaster. Yeah, it is, and I'm I'm uh, I was on the phone. Um, the last couple of days because I'm just getting ready to pull the trigger uh, on licensing a pretty sort of classic punk collection from the, from the seventies for to Porterhouse. Okay. And uh, I've actually, the, the final paperwork, I'm still waiting for it to come through, but I've already called the, the library, the, the, the vault to find out what tapes have you got so that I can sort of figure it out now because the sooner yeah. I get this record to be mastered and cut, the sooner it has a chance to be cut while there's still some lacquers around. But right yeah. now, all the lacquers that exist, all the lacquers that are exist are in two places. They're either at mastering houses or they were on trucks being shipped to mastering houses when that place burnt down. Hmm. Man, Jeez. it's so that's, it's, it's so, a disaster. So that's, it, that's yeah, so that's it. So basically, you know, for, for records that are already in, you know, my catalog and other labels catalogs, this isn't an issue because we've already plated those records and we have the metal parts to make the records from. Right. But this will affect this will affect new pro, uh, new new processing. We won't be able to the the, the supply of lacquers is not going to be endless. And in a couple of months, we're going to probably be at the bottom of the barrel. There's one company in Japan that apparently makes them. But apparently they're uh, completely, um, you know, their production line is already spoken for. They're not taking on new customers. And if I don't know, you know, I don't know that how you would get the recipe for the lacquers into the right hands and then equip a factory. It takes a lot of time and it takes money to set up a line, a production line in a factory. Yeah. And permitting, permitting takes time. And making things like lacquers that use really serious chemicals and oil-based residues um, and, and compounds, um, that takes permitting. And that, you know, not any company, that Apollo was grandfathered into where they were. Um, so the city where they allowed, I believe it was in Banning, allowed them to operate. But if they had to re-up and relicense tomorrow and get re-permitted in the same town, I don't know if they could do it. They might not Man. be able to. They might have to move somewhere else. Yeah. Might have to move to a to a red state where you know, <laughs> right. where where the, well they'll let, where they'll let you pour battery acid in a stream. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. Christ! To quote, to quote to quote to quote Lou Reed there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, we're going to see how this plays out. But it is not helpful. Um, the yeah. closing of Rainbow Records as one of the, the premier pressing plants in North America. That closed at the end of the year in Canoga Park, California, and that's where I had been pressing for the last 20 years. So my pressing plant was lost. Not only did I lose my pressing plant, I lost my credit. It took me years to build good credit with that company Mm. so that I could get records on credit, walk out the door with the records and get them to the distributor and start getting paid before my bills came due. That's gone. And that's gone for every other independent label that used to work through Rainbow. And it wasn't just like the punk rock labels like Porterhouse. 
was all the hip hop guys, you know, yeah. um, when, uh, back, back in the day, man, ruthless, right, those right. labels, they got credit from, from rainbow. They were able to press because of rainbow rainbow. Okay. Like people don't realize this, but rainbow was actually one of the reasons why the independent record industry continued to thrive in Los Angeles and why the punk rock scene and the hip hop scene were able to thrive because they had credit because they could go and get records pressed because the owners, you know, trusted the fact that people will pay their bills and everybody, and everybody did, you know? Yeah. So that, that, that was, a, that was a terrible loss. Really the loss there had nothing to do with anything, but the lease, but the lease for the building and the landlord wanted to triple the rent, you know, and that was, that was going to be the end of it. It's just, again, it's too much to pick up everything and retool a plant and build it somewhere else and get it permitted. So all those presses were sold to a company called United Record Pressing in Nashville, and they brought out 14 semi-trailer trucks and loaded it all up and moved it to Nashville. And I'm sure that a bunch of the guys that worked on the line at Rainbow will end up in Nashville because they're going to need qualified people to run those presses. Right. So some of those people will continue to have work, but all the folks that stuffed record jackets and mm -hmm. you know that shrunk-wrapped and stickered records – and uh, boxed records, mm -hmm. those jobs here in LA, they're they're gone. Those folks aren't. Yeah, those jobs aren't coming back. You know, so just another couple of hits that we we've taken. I'm not, I don't mean to make this sound like doomsday. <laughs> I think we will kind of come through this. I sure. think maybe yes. The I think yes, maybe the majors. I think they do want to kill off physical because mm -hmm. it costs money, and it costs manpower. But I don't see independent labels going away. And I actually think it's a good time. I think the last sort of 10, 10 years or so, it's been a good time to be a, a small independent record label. There's a niche that you can create there if you know what you're doing. Uh, if you're creating cool reissues or you've yeah. got a couple of cool new baby bands that people are interested in, you can drive people over to your website and get people to buy it. You know, Porterhouse, my label, we reissued that, uh, that Urge Overkill saturation yeah. record uh, last year it's done really really well the cool. all pummel record that reissue that we did has done well uh gun club reissue fire of love that does really really well mm -hmm. so you know i've got a few vinyl titles in the fold you know that 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 continue to to sell and so as long as as long as i can you know license those recordings from the majors and turn out really good quality vinyl people will buy that you know as long as they don't as long as the majors don't charge too much for the licenses, they're trying. Believe me, they're trying. <laughs> yeah. You sure. know, like, like, like Lana Del Rey put out a record like a year ago and, uh, or a year and a half ago. And, uh, the majors did a short run of vinyl on that. And they decided that they wanted to charge $50 a copy for the record. Well, Jeez. they didn't sell any, <laughs> they didn't right. sell any people will, people will buy what, um, what seems reasonable, but you right. gouge them and, and yeah. people back off. Like that's yeah. not punk rock. <laughs> no, no, that's, you know, no. So speaking of, speaking of punk rock, um, and you know, old school punk rock bands, let's, let's talk, um, let's talk about the social outcasts. Um, ah! <laughs> <laughs> so pretty funny. That was, but you uh, did some research. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, uh, the early eighties, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 81, 82, this was your band. That yeah, this is like my, my high, my high school band, my high school punk rock band. And I believe, believe 81 is correct. Um, that was sort of like one of those things where 
I guess I'd been, I'd kind of grown up listening to music that was on the radio, whatever rock and roll was on the radio at that time, you know, and like growing up in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, that would have been, would have been a, probably quite a bit of Canadian content there. There would be, would have been some Backman Turner Overdrive and some April Wine and uh, mm-hmm. bands like that, you know. And then when punk rock came along um, and a couple of friends at school were like, well, you should check this out. And it was like, oh, well, this speaks to me way more than what what everybody else is yeah. listening to, to, to Van Halen and Pink Floyd, you know. So immediately dropped all that and kind of started listening to these, you know, these just these straight up punk rock records, like a lot of pistols and a lot of clash. Sure. Uh, obviously in Vancouver, like a lot of DOA. Right. They were, a, mm-hmm. they were a big band in Canada and, uh, and, and they you, were a big you band. You played with them, right? In the States. I think that I, that we opened up for DOA. Uh, cool. Yeah. Our, my high school band opened up for DOA at some point. I think it was supposed to be a DOA TSOL like double bill wow. in Vancouver. Cool. We somehow got on the bill, but then TSOL couldn't get over the border. So yeah. they never, sh- they never showed to the gig. And of course everybody wanted to see TSOL and they got the social outcast. So I don't think anybody was too happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was one of those things where, um, that, that, that opened a door for me. That was sort of like a thing. Okay. Well, these songs are pretty straightforward and simple and, I could sort of, I picked up, I think the first instrument I picked up was a bass guitar and kind of like clunk through some of those songs kind of following along. Right. But that yeah. kind of taught me, oh, well, maybe you can make some racket for yourself. And I had a few friends in school that were interested in getting a band together. So that's exactly what we did. And we just sort of, you know, scraped together some gear and, uh, you know, rehearsed like in our parents' basement, uh, drove our neighbors nuts. <laughs> and kind of taught ourselves to play some songs, but also kind of taught ourselves like, okay, well, how do you get yourself out there? Like how, and, and, but we sort of managed to do it. Like we'd put up posters around town. Like even if we didn't have a gig, we just put up some posters that with our name on them, you know, so people would sort of know about the band and That's kind right. of go to these shows and bug some of the promoters. Like, Hey, <laughs> like we had this, we're out in, we're out in the suburbs and we had this band, but here's a tape, you know, like we went to a recording studio and figured out, you know, how to record some songs onto an eight track, like really, really basic stuff looking back to it. But when you're 15 or 16 years old, all that stuff seems pretty huge to kind of accomplish. So yeah. I, I will say, I, I don't, I don't know about those, <laughs> those songs or anything we were doing back, back <laughs> then, but, um, but as far as just a stepping stone into building confidence to uh, you know, not be afraid to pick up an instrument, not be afraid to make a mistake, not be afraid to kind of teach yourself some parts or play along to the radio or play along to a record to kind of try and figure something out. I think that was really, really, those were positive lessons that came out of that. And those yeah. were confidence builders. And they were also things that kind of taught you about the DIY uh, ethic, like, you're not yep. going to get anything if you don't get out there and kind of blow your own horn. You're not going to yep. get noticed if you don't say, speak up for yourself, you know? And so I learned some of those really valuable lessons. And those, those lessons, those would be like going down to the record store 
and like seeing other bands posters on the wall or seeing other bands like, you know, with like little pull tab ads saying, Hey, we're looking for a drummer or looking, we're looking for a bass player. Right. So that's how you sort of understood that. Oh, okay. Well, there's this kind of call. There's this subculture here that folks that want to do this stuff. And in that there was support. And in that there was direction. And, and of course, like growing up in a, in a, city like Vancouver, which had a really vibrant music scene in the late 70s and early 80s, there were tons of bands and tons yeah. of musicians, and everybody was really, really good. Yeah. Like the, the, the Vancouver Complication record, that comp, that, the Vancouver Complication is a compilation of, you know, a dozen bands from that era. And okay. it is... Like as Jack Rabbit from Big Takeover said once, he's like, that's the probably one of the most important records that was ever pressed in North America in the punk era. Hmm. If you go back and listen, DOA's on that, the Young Canadians are on that, I think the Subhumans are on that. Um, you go back and you listen to that stuff and you see how broad and how diverse the talent base was. Not a single one of the bands sound like one another. They all sound completely unique and completely cool and have their own style, you know? And so there was like lots of kind of direction to follow. And there was lots of encouragement just by watching what was going on in your own community. And so that was a good starting point, I think, to try. And I guess that sort of like, you know, lit the fire. I ended up not really ever stepping back from music after that in a way. But um, those were good. Those were good experiences for sure. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you have in your mind, even then that you wanted to move into engineering and producing, or was that kind of a natural evolution? I think it was a more natural evolution. Like I, I kind of did enjoy playing a lot, but I also could see what it appeared like to me was that, that a lot of folks that were doing that, um, especially in that genre, okay, in punk rock, yeah. because there wasn't any, there wasn't any money in it in the eighties and the ni- in the eighties. It wasn't until like the mid nineties and the late nineties <laughs> that there was right. money in it, yeah, right. Yeah. So even even back then, you'd sort of look at it and go, yeah, is this how I you know is this sustainable? But I knew that I was fascinated by how records were made, and I knew that the engineering thing and the production thing, I knew that that was something I could do for years and years and years. Yeah, right. That you know, sense. and and, all, and even although that's changed now too, right? Like sure. everybody's got a laptop, so everybody's a record producer. Right. You know, right. so that's that's kind of also going to the wayside now, or it has gone to the wayside for a number of years. Um, the, the production business definitely isn't what it used to be. Um, but we don't sell records like, like we used to. Um, but uh, but I think that, um, yeah, the musicianship thing definitely sort of opened the door. That showed me that there was a sustainability in engineering and production. I also like the fact that there was just so much to learn in, in sure. that metier, you know? Right. So, there, you know, um, there's like a, a million boxes of gear that do a million different things. And, you know, there's there's just so many ways to approach making a record that um that that it just never gets old you know and yeah. like I'm, I'm working on the slick shoes record right now yeah you know we're, we're trying stuff yes. and throwing ideas around and it's like i'm just kind of posting little tasters on facebook or at my studio steve, page over at health steve, that, that that stuff sounds good that clip that you posted of jackson 
shredding and like that sound that that's heavy as fuck it is yeah it's that it's so heavy it is so heavy i'm so i'm so psyched for this new record and so that that's something i wanted to ask you is um so over the course of your career um have you how have you determined how hands are you are in the process of working with the band so like with slick shoes, um, you know, I think you had said that they're pretty open to your feedback and your ideas. Um, but are there? So, how are there? Is it just like a band by band thing that some are like they come in and if they're working with you, they know they're going to have to be a little bit more flexible, or or if some band comes in and they're like, no, this is what we want, this is what we're going to do, and then you just kind of go with it. I think it kind of goes both ways. And I think that that is part of a producer's job is to kind of understand where he fits. Um, what is, what's sort of ending up happening is for that period of time, you sort of become the additional band member mm-hmm. and you're kind of trying to impart ideas that you think have value and you think can raise the level of a performance or the level of a part. Well, then you're going to do it yeah. now. They might try that idea and it might sound clunky or it might sound good. So maybe that idea gets picked up. Maybe it doesn't. Um, part of the Slick Shoes record that we're dealing with right now is, is that the guys have pieced the core of the songs together, but the songs are also sort of coming together in the studio. So mm-hmm. there have been parts where we've kind of laid down like a basic track and then listened to it and gone and I've gone, okay, well, what's going to happen here? And what's going to happen here? And then start taking some notes and then go back to the guys and go, okay, I'm thinking about this here. I'm okay. thinking about this here. And I'd like a breakdown here. And we need something to happen there. And when I give those specific instructions, the guys are like, oh, yeah, I could hear that. <laughs> yeah, we should try something there. And so with a, with a band like Slick Shoes, where you've worked with them, they're already made a couple of records and there is – a good amount of, of a trust and respect between band and producer, then I think that stuff kind of gets thrown around pretty easily. And we try to experiment with a lot of stuff. For sure, instance, yeah. we, uh, and some of the stuff just doesn't even happen with all the guys there. Like we were working on bass the other day uh, and, or like two weeks ago, we were working on bass. And so we got to, we're sort of working on this song. It's one of the last songs and I'm kind of listening to a few passes of it. And I said, well, I think that, I think that when the reintro comes around after the first chorus, we should change keys and it should be in a higher key through the reintro. And then when we go back to the sort of verse part, we'll drop back into the, the regular key of the song. Hmm. And so Jeremiah, the bassist was like, okay, let's give it a try. And so on a scratch track, we just kind of worked it out. Well, what would the, no- what would the notes be? Okay, these would be the notes. So let's try that there. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds pretty cool. It kind of breathes mm-hmm. a lot of life into that part. And they were like, oh yeah, but we got to be careful because there's a guitar solo coming out of that. We need to make sure when we drop into the right key, we're in the key where the solo is. <laughs> so you go back and listen to Jackson's track of the solo, figure out on the guitar, okay, he's here. So that's where we need to be. So <laughs> we tracked the part and then I sort of rearranged the whole bass part for the solo where Jeremiah has been kind of pedaling all the way through. And I'm like, yeah, let's not do that anymore. Let's play that as like 
let's play that as like a whole note walk, almost like a blues walk that's going to go underneath the solo. So mm. while Jackson's shredding, you're gonna, you'll actually be playing less <laughs> with the right hand. Then you won't be filling up as much space, and it's going to give the solo lots of room. Yeah. And so Jackson came back in, and he's like, okay, so we're ready to cut your guitars for this. The bass is already done, which that's, I usually, that's usually the wrong way around. I always do bass last, but we're kind of in a pinch here because – guys can only work on weekends so yeah. he had a couple of tracks that the bass had to go down on and so <laughs> jackson comes back and i said okay so by the way the song's a little different than when you were here last week <laughs> right, right, yeah. now there's a modulation and the bass figures changed under your solo and so he plays it through a couple of times he's like whoa okay and then and he's like that modulation is pretty cool can we modulate the whole thing i'm like well <laughs> no no it just just needs it here but so so that is an example of where I've just gone in and like it's open heart surgery, right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Taking apart major key change, changing changing rhythm figures. Um, that's going to change how the song is perceived, and that's going to sh- that's going to change its shelf life. And I'm hopefully hoping that it's going to make it sound like a heck of a more interesting listen, you know. But we've sort of been doing that on all of the songs on that on that record on this new record, um, to the point where. Ryan and I, who have worked together very closely, I can just go into the room and sing Ryan's part back to him and with two notes changed, and it's a better part. And he'll go, oh, dude, yeah, that, that, that. I'll sing mm-hmm. that, right? And so then he'll try that, and we'll give it a couple shots. We do a lot of singing together just wow, in the room. Yeah. You know, like, hey, what about this note? If you go up here, what if you go down here? Like, we'll take the moment and we'll try it a few different ways. And then also, you know, we're changing melodies as we go so that mm-hmm. choruses don't always get sung the same way. They've got little inflections that are different. There's always a little bit of ear candy. And so working with the Slick Shoes guys, I find they're just really, really open to trying new stuff. They want to, they want the interjection of ideas. They know that we've had, that we've done productive work in the past that has paid off. So the, the, the trust is there to just kind of go for it. And I kind of feel like in a way we're all sort of flying without a net. And I know that when some people hear some of the songs on that record, they're going to be quite surprised. They're going to go, right. whoa, they, they, that is a, that's a detour. That's a left turn. But that's, what, that's part of the record that I want to make for those guys. Like yeah. we've, already made, we've already made Burnout. Like right. Why would we want to go back and make Ex- that again? Yes, like, exactly. I, I want to make... I want to make that record and I want to take some parts of it, but then I want to make something that's completely new that people would go, Whoa, that's a new slick shoes record. That's pretty crip, you know? Well, you know, and, and this is, and this is what I experienced, you know, like just seeing that clip on just the guitar part, pretty much on Twitter. I was like, Holy shit. This is, this is, and I'm like, I was immediately into it. So like I'm I'm fully on board with uh a new sound pushing a new uh a new direction and and also basically what I'm hearing you say is you are kind of the George Martin of slick shoes. You know, you're the you're the you're the you're the fifth slick shoe, I guess if that's uh a... I I I you know, I'll I'll take that and I and I don't think the guys I don't think the guys would argue that. Uh, and, yeah. and, I, and honestly, I believe that that's why they're at Hell's Half Acre working with me on this record is because they feel that they they wanted somebody that could come in and kind of play the wild card a little bit and let them 
get crazy and kind of push them to do that kind of stuff. Like I'm finding like definitely finding Jackson's technique has changed a little bit and he definitely sounds a little more, let's say hybridized as a mm -hmm. player, as opposed to back in the early nineties when, when he was maybe a very melodic punk rock player, you know? Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But he's, he, I definitely think that like, I wasn't joking when I made that post and I said, make pop punk Pantera again, because <laughs> there are, there are parts of this record that to me get to that uh, Pantera place that get to that Slayer place. And, right. and, and I like how those records sound and I like how those records are made. So for me to have the opportunity to kind of jump in and do something that is along those lines, that's really a heck of an opportunity that not everybody gets. And I'm going to take every, you know, chance I can get and go out on every limb to see if it breaks off, <laughs> how far I can go out before it breaks off and leave. And I go ass over tea kettle onto the ground, but, <laughs> but um, we're going to, and, 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 you know, this is just stuff that we're dealing with right now in, 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 in tracking and arranging these songs. I think when we get to mix down, we're also going to be adding some stuff. Although, although I've asked the guys, you know, in certain places like, Hey, we're going to make some commitments early on here. And uh, we've thrown down some effects on some bass in a couple spots, something we'd probably never do. Jackson and I have been targeting uh, certain parts of certain guitar sounds to just make them super hairy or super weird or very clean mm. or acoustic. You know, we're doing all sorts of tones across, across the board. Uh, we're going to do some stuff with Ryan's vocals where there's going to be some effects and stuff that folks just haven't heard his voice process this way before. We haven't done that stuff before. And, uh, and, and so we're going to make this a record that uh, I, I really hope that people won't soon forget. And that uh, is going to demonstrate that, um, that Slick Shoes is still a going concern and that they're capable of working at a very, very high level. Well, you know, if, if there's any indication, you know, the records that you work on don't, are, don't go anywhere. You, the records that you work on, like you have produced some of the most significant records of my, of my, years and they are still significant records to me um but i so i want to i want to shift um focus here for a second because i want to i want to talk canada for a moment if you if you don't mind um sure. as as a uh canadian a a hockey fan um i'm curious as a Canucks hockey fan and um, a graduate of Burnaby North Secondary School. Um, I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> those facts. Yeah, I'm curious if if you have any pride in your alma mater that they produced uh, players for the Canucks like Cliff Ronning and Mike Santarelli. Does that is that something that you like to uh, that you think about that you're just like oh shit my 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 team as people coming out of my uh, out of my my old stopping grounds. Well, I I and, um I I think there's still uh, folks coming out of uh, out of the systems there. You know, uh, it's not like America where you've got a few different options. You know, you could play baseball, or you could play football, or you could play hockey, or you could play basketball. Up there, you could pretty much play hockey, and that's it. Right. <laughs> so, uh, there no no doubt there have been. Um, some some uh 
real talented players that have come up in, in my own backyard. Um, but I would say that that's sort of a story across Canada, you know, hmm. in every yeah. little town has, has their guy, you know, like Bobby Orr was the pride of Perry Sound, Ontario, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have to turn over the, a, a rock to find some of these places on a map, you know? <laughs> sure. But, 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 um, there, uh, I think that, um, that, that's sort of an interesting thing too. Cause like when I moved to LA and started going to like a lot of Kings games, you sort of found out that like all the hockey players were music fans and punk rock fans and rock and huh. roll fans. And that all the, the, a lot of the musicians, you know, like, you know, folks that I grew up with, like, you know, uh, like the Bad Religion guys and the SNFU guys, they're huge hockey fans, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you'd end up, you'd end up going to a game, you know, every once in a while. And sometimes after the game, you'd end up meeting some of these guys, you know? Um, I can remember meeting Felix Potvin, you know, at, uh, at uh, the forum, you know, before mm -hmm. the, the forum closed, you know? So there's always kind of been like this cross section between, uh, music and, and the sports world because we're all in entertainment when you when you think about it, you know, mm -hmm. and right. um, and uh, so there are there are parallels there, and I, I can't exactly remember. It's kind of a funny story, but I can remember going to a Kings game when the Life in General record broke, and they played the Chick Magnet video on the jumbotron. <laughs> nice, wow! At Staples Center, how surreal was, was that? Like, that was pretty surreal. I was sort of like, whoa, like, I guess this record's doing okay. <laughs> was that, was that your first moment? Like where you thought like, oh shit, like something I'm, I'm producing is like getting pretty huge. Yeah, maybe. Like I, I think when that first Blink record happened, yeah, the Cheshire Cat re record happened, that was it's kind of big. like, that was kind of an odd one because we we kind of those sessions happened really quickly over a weekend and they had to go back and you know retrack some of the stuff in san diego because we just didn't have enough time we were given three days and 17 songs to track and mix it's like come on like this isn't gonna happen like yeah but we just kind of so we just kind of soldiered through and then i didn't hear much more about it and i was driving down melrose one day on the way to work or something and this car pulls up beside us and the record was blaring out of the car and i was like wait a minute that sounds like a song that i recorded <laughs> who the heck is that and then so we kind of rolled down our windows like who are you listening to and they're like blink 182 and we're like what <laughs> they're like yeah yeah the record just came out it's amazing i'm like i recorded that record <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so wow that was like one of those ones that was like a real kind of like random like like you didn't know it just didn't know it was happening and then all of a sudden it was happening um, and, 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 and the, that life in general, that video thing too, that was sort of one of those things as well, um, where you kind of realize, wow, this is maybe a little bit bigger than I thought it was going to be. Um, but I, I, at the same time, I just kind of remember being happy for the band, mm -hmm. um, because it was a really, you know, like on the life in general thing, it was a really step, big step for them, you know, like they went from sort of, you know, playing in church basements and more like on a faith-based yeah. circuit to becoming a national act. Yeah. And that, touring with Blink-182. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that record, um, the hard work that we all put into that record paid dividends for everybody. 
you know? Yeah. And so that, that, that's one of the positive things that I took away from, from that experience too. You know, like I learned a lot, they learned a lot. We did something that kind of set a bar and people appreciate it. So, so that was, uh, it was very, very positive. I look back on those records with a lot of fond memories. Yeah. You know, I know, Andrew, you have more hot Canadian content for him. Maybe we can fit some in lightning round style at the end or something. Okay, but I sure. do want to make sure before we lose you that we get to talk about Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears a bit. Um, sure. Because we are big fans of this record. And, you know, for people who might know you exclusively from your producing and engineering, like, could you just give us some background on it seems like it's something that was in the works for a while um but kind of what you know how long was this idea a long time coming what made you want to do a solo record how did you kind of prepare for it um the idea had definitely been around for a long time like a really long time yeah um but everything sort of happens in its own time and its own place for a reason um and I guess, I guess I had gone through a couple of things in my life. There had been some major changes uh, in my life that sort of led me to believe that I had a sort of different vision of things and that I was now sort of prepared or had the ammunition that I needed to complete writing the record that I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were episodes before where I did sort of, stop and start writing like I'd work on some ideas and then that would get dropped and I'd move on to making somebody else's record. And then I'd finish that record and then I'd go back. Oh, well, where was that tape of that? You know? And then, Oh, drop that idea. Cause something else came up. Right. But about, um, six years ago, I moved out of the LA basin where I'd been living for 20 years and I moved up into the mountains North of the city, built a new studio there. I was kind of starting uh, uh, maybe like a, just a, a new life in a way. Um, still like, you know, running my label, running my studio, but in a different place. And I'd gone through through some, some things uh, on a personal level that I felt kept draw that's that, that subject of that muse kept drawing me. And I sort of realized, okay, you've been sort of placed in this kind of remote area with a whole sack full of ideas. And now you finally have some time. So maybe you need to finally sit down and work on this. And I think also part of that was, as I've done a lot of ghostwriting for other folks and Mm -hmm. come up with, you know, parts of songs for other people and I've also worked with a lot of really good writers like Mark Hoppus and mm-hmm. Michael Herrera. Mm-hmm. So you learn a few lessons along the way. And, you know, I learned a lot of lessons before I got to, into the LA recording scene, working at West Beach up in Canada, working with some bands up there like Asexuals and Doughboys and the Nils and Jerry Jerry and the Sons of Rhythm Orchestra and mm-hmm. all like other stuff, you know, from the days gone by. So, um, it just kind of seemed like everything was pointing to, okay, now's really the time to do it. And as maybe too, as I was a little bit older and a little bit more sage, um, (laughs) I felt that I felt it was a safe time uh, to start some serious writing because uh, 
perhaps I had left some baggage behind and was seeing things uh, maybe clearer, but also was able to see that I needed to set a bar for myself, like the bar that I'd been setting for others for so many years. Um, and so that's where the focus for this record kind of came together. And I sort of looked at the subject matter I had on hand and decided, okay, I think there's enough here to begin. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a couple of months just, you know, writing treatments for songs, writing lyrics, writing ideas, expanding on these ideas, getting them to a place where um, they sounded like developed ideas, not um, uh, not a not not a brain fizzle, <laughs> if you mm-hmm. if you will. Um, I knew that composing was something that I wanted to demonstrate that I had ability at because I think that as I get older, it's something I'll be able to do more of in the future and hopefully Mm -hmm. maybe do some writing for others who like, like my style. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of in the background. I've sort of been thinking about that as well, but uh, piecing the record together took some time Uh, It took a couple of months of just kind of going into the office every day to write the treatments for the songs, figure out what the lyrics would be so that that I knew what sort of like the tone of the song would be. And once I knew what the tone of song would be, then I could sort of write instrumental parts for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I kind of started framing out, you know, fleshing out, well, what would, what would the guitars be for this or what, what would the guitars be for that? And it's one thing when you do it with a band and you sort of show up at a rehearsal room every day with four other people and they're bringing in ideas. But when you're doing it all by yourself, you have to write all the parts and develop right. all the parts. And you got to teach yourself how to play them. <laughs> right. And you got to teach and you got to teach yourself how to play some fancy chords, too, because everybody <laughs> needs some fancy chords. You just can't, you know, you can't go in there and play a bunch of bar chords. So so what ended up, you know, what normally would take in a band cycle, maybe you know, six months or a year to develop, I think probably took me three years to develop. Wow. Sure. And then it was sort of finding time. Okay, well, there's some time now, so let's try and record the drums for these songs. So get in and record the drums. And then figure out, okay, well, now it's time to record the guitar parts. Figure those out. Well, you've got to figure out a couple of rhythm parts, maybe a couple of lead parts. You might be doing four or five tracks for one song that you've got to develop. Well, then figure out how you've got to do 11 songs like that. It's like a lot of work. And so things yeah. just kind of kept kept taking their time. And sometimes I sort of felt frustrated and I wanted things to move faster. And then sometimes I'd be like, oh, things are moving at a good pace. Like you're, you're not rushing through this. You're developing the ideas. Um, so it all took a long time to come together. And then I kind of had it together. and was like, okay, well, let's put it out now. And I'm sort of looking at the calendar going, well, now is a bad time to put out the record. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> just you know, just business wise, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to fall in a fall cycle where college radio was working because I knew I was going to do a college radio service for the record through the label. Mm. I didn't want something that was going to drop in the middle of the summertime, you know, like those things still kind of matter if you're thinking about marketing. So, sure. And I also, I also wanted the record to be released when I knew I was going to have time after to support it at my label and you know, make sure that I could service it to press and make sure I could serve it to service it to radio and do the small things that make a difference in hopefully, you know, letting people hear the record or find out about the record. So, yeah, I think all in all, 
from the time that I sat down and put pen to paper to the time that it hit, it's probably three and a half years about <laughs> okay. to finally yeah. get it out. Uh, and I kind of look back at it now and I, I go, gosh, that was, that was a huge task to get all that done, you know? Yeah. And you're doing all the engineering yourself and doing all the mixing yourself and doing the mastering yourself and you're preparing the production masters to send to the plant and you're preparing all the artwork and the photographs and, you know, you don't have a photo- photographer, so you're taking your own photos and, you know, it's, it's like, yeah. if, if, normally the stuff that it takes a village to do, I just did it all myself. Right. The yeah. only exception there being is that once I had the basic structures for the songs in place, I could sort of determine which guests I wanted to have mm-hmm. play okay. on each song. And that some, a couple of those songs, they, it was immediate, like, Oh, like, like when, um, the Capitol Hill song came together. I knew that that had to be a song that Kevin Kane from Grapes of Wrath and the Northern Pikes had to play mm. guitar on because Kevin's a real George Harrison uh, understudy mm. and he can play electric 12 string and he can play lap steel and he knows those Harrison voicings. And so I knew by putting him on that song that it would take that song to the right place. Yeah. Um, I knew when I was working on the song Loose Ends that that, I wanted Wayne from MC five to play that yeah. lead solo and play that song. Cause the parts of that song are kind of morphed off of a, a, a two chord song that he wrote in the MC five called looking at you. And when he asked me like, Oh, like, what do you hear on this? I said, I hear what you did on looking at you on back in the USA. And he's yeah. like, Oh, I can do that. You know, I, I know how cool. to do that. I said, that's good. Cause I don't, <laughs> I don't have, yeah. I don't have the foggiest, you know? So, so I tried to get people, um, involved, uh, as collaborators, uh, pretty much on each song, you know, to just so that it didn't come out completely me so that there was a little bit more flavor there so that I wouldn't, uh, so the things sonically and melodically had a little bit more scope to them, yeah. you know? Um, I I had a, a ballad called um, I Will Too, and you know I wanted I wanted some really tasty flavors there, but I wanted it to be I wanted to have some jazz um, flavors to it, and you know Bob Bobby Adams who played you know lead and rhythm in Seven Seconds, one of the you know formative yeah. hardcore bands in America. Yeah. Well, nobody really know nobody really knows it, but Bobby's a huge jazz fan and aficionado, and he's one heck of a jazz guitar player. And so I said, Bobby, how would you feel about, you know, playing some like clean guitar and some kind of like, you know, jazz voicings over this ballad that I have, you know, I don't want you to do what you do in your other band. I want you to do what you're, what you like to do in your heart, in your bedroom at home, like when you're jamming by yourself. And so he was, he was super happy to be asked to do that. And he brought, he came to the table with loads of ideas. You know, hey, what about this part here? What about this part here? He's like, oh, I've got an idea for that. I've got an idea for this. Listen to this. Listen to that. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he came in completely prepared for the sessions and with developed ideas, you know? Yeah. So, so it was about getting, it was about putting some folks like in their comfort zone. It was about moving some other folks out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that part of it worked out really, really well. I think there's, you know, a variety of, of, of lead guitar voicings on it. Um, 
I really like some of the stuff that Scrote Bundini played, um, Song Calendar Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of get he got that one, and um, he also played on uh, the title track Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. And I kind of laid that song out to him as like that's sort of like a Neil Young and Crazy Horse kind of tune. Okay. It's got yeah. about there's about four there's about four chords in the entire song. I just flipped them around so it sounds like there's more, but it's only four chords in the song. Okay. So he needed to create some melodic voicings there, the way that Neil Young would do, like that had a lot of tension and that weren't particularly busy or noty, but still felt like a knife going right through your heart. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's what that's what he was able to bring. So, you know, uh, Johnny from Social D, Social D. Right. I've known him since we did uh, a Youth Brigade record together in the '90s. Cool. And he was playing in Youth Brigade at the time, and it took us a while to get that session together because he's so busy playing with Social D, and he's also been supporting his own solo record, uh, Salvation Town, which is an absolutely fantastic record. I just cool. can't say enough about his, his writing and his playing and his singing on that record. I think that there were times when I was working on my record, I'd listen to Salvation Town and go, Hey, he did it. I can do it. Yeah. You know? And I got, I, I drew a lot of encouragement out from, from, from how developed and what a fine product uh, that Johnny was able to put together. I was really, really proud to see him to stand tall on his own after being, you know, in other people's bands mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to do his own record and have it be such a, uh, such a competently written and, and, and played record. And he brought some wonderful people in on his record too, to, to, to play. So I don't know, maybe I tore a page out of his book there a little bit, but I always knew there was going to be plenty of guests. I always knew that, I wanted to get others involved. People don't really know me as a writer or a singer. So you want to make it easy for folks to give it a listen. And I think it it is a little easier to give a listen to um, if you know that there's maybe some other folks on there that interest you, you know? I mean, I think we kind of got to that late in punk rock. The punk Mm. rock was a little bit more standoffish, but the hip hop people, the hip hop people got to that early. They realized that collaboration was really important and they realized that working on each other's records was really important. And I think think that helped the, that helped their scene at at, at the time. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I knew it was going to be my thing, but I knew it had to have other, other flavor in it. You just can't, it, it would have been boring. It would have been, it wouldn't have been the right record if I didn't have the person, other personalities involved in making contributions that I did. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know we, uh, we don't have a ton of time left with you here, but the, just in terms of how warm it sounds and it's got this great power pump, power pop, uh, feel like I just wanted to ask about, you know, having played a lot of the instruments to yourself, even if you brought in a lot of friends and guests, were there a lot of specific sounds or instruments or gear that you were eager to use on a solo record or did it just kind of evolve naturally from the songwriting? I think it evolved more naturally from the songwriting. Like the song basically set the path and, and the tone of the song was sort of saying, well, this is, I'm asking for this here and I'm asking for this here. So you better do that. After you do this for a while, you hear when the song is telling you what to do. Sure. Um, so I think that part of that structure 
uh, it's just sort of inherent in the compositions itself. Um, but the way that the record was tracked was basically like, I pretty much started with a click track and I'd lay down a rhythm guitar or an acoustic guitar. And then I would build the drums and other guitars around that. And once the song had all the, the, the core parts, the drums, bass, rhythm guitars, the vocals, the, the proper melodies, maybe mm -hmm. a few clean riffs that I was putting here, only then would I give it to other people and go, okay, I want you to, you know, in this spot here, this spot here, and this spot here, I want you to come up with parts for that. Okay. Um, and so that's how some of those, that's how some, some of that developed. Uh, there was a couple of techniques I did that I knew that I wanted to try. I knew I wanted to try um, Nashville high string tuning for acoustic, which mm -hmm. I hadn't had much opportunity to do in punk rock. But you know, Tom Petty would do it a lot for the to jangle up uh, sure. the the clean guitars, the acoustics on his record. It works really, really well. That was one trick that I was like, oh, definitely want to use that. Um, some, somehow along the way, I picked up a mandolin and I was like, oh, I'm going to play some punk rock mandolin on this record. <laughs> <laughs> right on. And so I was, was uh, really excited about bringing that instrument into, the, the, into things. And then for, um, for keyboards, I'm not, I've never been a big keyboard player. I've always, always considered myself a little just more solid, solid with drums and bass and guitar, those core instruments. But um, I did want to get into a little uh, uh, piano at some point. I put, you know, Capitol Hill's got a little bit of sort of Wurlitzer yeah. um, electric piano on it. I'm sort of trying to get to like almost to the Steely Dan place there, like sure. in that in that in that pop way there, without um, making it sound cheesy. So that was, you know, teaching myself a few like simple parts, you know, little runs on piano. I I, I really enjoyed doing that, and then. Singing, that was definitely a challenge. Um, I've sung a lot of backups on records that you know and have heard um, and, you know, added additional vocals where they'd been needed when there was nobody else around to sing them. Sure. Um, so I knew that from that experience and just, just working with singers as a producer that that my pitch was good, but it's one thing to kind of you know, sit in a room with an acoustic guitar and sing your songs. It's another thing to get behind a microphone and sing them and go, okay, what did that sound like? And so I did have to do a lot of educating myself as far as teaching myself how to be a better singer. That took a lot of time. Took, uh, took, I took some vocal lessons. I went to a vocal coach, um, worked on some techniques, watched some instructors online to pick up techniques um, that was one of the biggest mountains to climb, I think, was just like teaching myself sure. how to sing sing properly. So yeah. so that was a big challenge. But that was something I was looking forward to, too, as well, you know, like to kind of say, OK, well, you know, now it's time to do that thing as well. So there were plenty of personal challenges, I think, along the way uh, as far as, you know, getting myself comfortable with new instruments, getting myself more comfortable with vocalizations uh, getting myself comfortable with arranging, you know, the right way for backup vocals the way I like, like all those backup parts had to kind of be built and stacked and, um, getting my Carrera involved there, getting Stephen McDonald involved from Red Cross there. Mm -hmm. Those were, um, those were really good, you know, decisions. Mike and my voice sound good together. They always have because I I've always known that cause I sang backups on those 
early mm-hmm. records when Tom and Yuri weren't doing any singing. Sure. Um, just anywhere we needed a second voice, that's, that's me singing. Um, and so I knew our, our voices would work together and I wanted to get Stephen McDonald involved because I knew that him being from Hawthorne and a power pop guy and a beach boys guy, I knew that he would understand what I was going for. Um, and the funny thing was actually, it was like when I got the blends of the vocals, his vocals back and Mike's vocals back and I started piecing together, um, my vocals and Stephen McDonald's vocals sounded so close to each other. I had to sort of rethink how to mix the blends mm. so that we got them to sound really chordy because if you put Steven and I beside each other, we're both like six foot two. We both weigh about 170 pounds and we both have pretty big noses. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so we kind of sound the same. It was kind of interesting, but, but I managed to get blends that, that, that worked. Um, you know, I wanted, really full thick beach boys backup vocals that was one of those things that was going to have to happen you know the beach really? boys were going to be in play on this record elvis costello was going to be in play on this record yeah. uh you know um nick lowe was going to be in play the the writers whose work that i really matthew sweet mm-hmm. the, yeah. the writers teenage fan club mm-hmm. the writers the songwriters that i really think do pop the best yeah mm-hmm. um and i and Somebody told me early on, I played them like a, a rough mix of something I was working on. And they said, damn, you sound like Elvis Costello. And I thought, well, that's yeah. really positive. <laughs> I, I like how those records sound and I like the yeah. energy in them. And I, and I like his lyrics and I like the attitude that he sings with. So if I'm moving in that direction, then I must be doing probably something that's positive. So um, I think all the influences from the things that I like in music are definitely show up on the, on, on this record. Right. Um, you know, somebody wrote the uh, review of it and they said, it's sort of like the, it's like Elvis Costello's writing with the arrangements and like the sounds of Tom Petty. And I thought that's kind of a cool way of putting it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and since those are two of the greatest songwriters of the last 30 years, or 40 years, you can probably, you know, say okay well at least in the songwriting department we're on steady ground here you know not everybody's got to like it but you've got to be in a place that you like it you've got to be in a place where you feel confident in enough confidence in it enough to put it out there for people um so i think getting some of that feedback early on before the record really even got done helped me with the energy to push to the finish line and sort of insist to myself, don't cut any corners and try and get things as best you can. You know, is everything in pitch with my vocal? No, there's, you know, there's a few pitchy places and maybe a couple of words don't sound exactly the way that they should have if I had been singing for, you know, 10 or 15 years. But for a first record, I think it is a good um, debut. I think that songs are strong i think that the songs are emotional i think that they're approachable and i think that they all tell a story and that the stories can be taken a couple of different ways and it's not it's not too samey kind of spread it out there's a few right. ballads there's a few up tempo numbers there's just enough mid tempo you know i always like to kind of go by this the 633 rule which is sort of like about six mid tempo about three ed tempo and about three ballad Mm, as like long that. as you kind of keep that, if you kind of keep that mix going, you kind of have a well, you generally have a well-balanced record. You know, you don't get yeah. too much of one thing and you can sequence 
those 11 or 12 songs in a manner or 13 songs, whatever it is, you can, you can sequence them in a way that helps keep things moving along and people don't kind of get caught up and go, Oh, you know, it's kind of clunking down or something like that. And I, I think summer bliss and autumn tears is a listen. I think it moves along, you know, I think yeah. that the, the sequence works well. I think the songs flow song to song. I think it re-energizes where it needs to, it comes down where it needs to. Um, but you know, I, I was trying to pay attention to that stuff, you know, hopefully, hopefully listeners out there that take a chance to listen to the record and, and hear it will, will feel the same. And, you know, we'll buy a copy of it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I want to, I want to give this album some love like to you and say how much, uh, how much I enjoy it. And, and, you know, like you were, you were, you were talking about some of your influences, like, you know, Matthew Sweet and Elvis Costello and Tom Petty, because I do feel like it has like a, this year's model, uh, wildflowers by tom petty or girl and like a girlfriend matthew sweet combo it just like yeah it has it has a lot of those kinds of elements to it that i i find really really enjoyable and and like you were saying like not doing some of the samey samey kind of things all the time that john and i were talking off mic before you joined that like that you and with so many years of your producer experience, you clearly know how to uh, direct a uh, another musician on like kind of what you want, but you also don't, you, you give uh, the flourishes when, where it's necessary. You, 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 you bring something forward or you pull back when it's, and like, like preemptive strike is, is my jam. And I love at the end when that little keyboard part comes in. When I was a well-polished diplomat I didn't think that our problems were as big as that Like if you had that like on every chorus or like every part, it wouldn't have that same level of impact it does towards the end of the song. Or like right. or like Greg Lease in his pedal steel guitar. Oh my God, it's it's so great. Like yeah, it's so really, yeah. um so like and yeah. if, if the, these sorts of things were on every song, it wouldn't have that same level of impact, but they those those things stand out some of those gang vocals that you have on you walk by it it mm-hmm. just sort of elevates the song and you're just like you you wait for those sort of like crisp moments that you're just like oh man this it takes it just takes it up one more notch 
and you know and those yeah, like, i think i think i think when i'm i think when i'm working on it a, a lot of times and we kind of been talking about that with slick shoes you know over the last couple of weeks because we're getting the part point now where we're starting to stack parts you know like we're right. getting other things going and i like to call it like a gear shift you know like i think that's a good way of putting it like mm-hmm. and in those arrangements on 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 summer bliss and autumn tears i've really tried to make the gear shifts count like they're where they need to be and there's certain things that like literally if those gear shifts aren't in there the songs would have fallen flat on their faces and they wouldn't have got to the finish line um the song hiding place has there's only one key change on the entire record but it's on that song hiding place and if if that hadn't have been there i don't think that song gets to the finish line like i just don't you know Mm. and i think that um uh like preemptive the, the the keyboard riff in that uh that third uh that third verse pre-chorus section uh yes it jumps out to you and yes it's kind of like whoa it's out of left field but again like if that wasn't there uh, like again i don't think we i don't think we get to the finish line you know and i get excited for that moment i when i re-listen to that song i'm like i know it's coming and it's going to be so satisfying (laughs) when it gets there Uh yeah yeah you got to dole out the sugar i mean let's not let's not get ourselves (laughs) well it's it's a power pop record so like i'm not it's like i'm waiting for that sweetness man i'm waiting for like just that little ear candy or some of those earworms that's that's what i and that's those like really super lush harmonies that you have uh, throughout the record i'm just like yeah man i'm i'm there for it right yeah the harmonies were sort of things where like i knew those vocal pads i didn't want a lot of that there there wasn't going to be a lot of that pop punk like singing you know the, the third or the fifth over like the entire course kind of thing like i i wasn't going to make a barbershop punk rock record <laughs> sure. like that no 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 uh I, I i the beach boys those pads getting the blend of the vocals having that be supportive like to me that's more where the magic is and yes i did throw down some harmony stuff on a few turnarounds and in some spots but just because you can do it everywhere doesn't mean you should do it everywhere. Yeah. You got to, you got to pick your spots, you know? Yeah. And I thought that it, I thought that doing the, the vocal pads, those thick pads, I thought that that was more impactful and more dreamy um, and more engaging than, you know, sort of singing along in a kind of barbershoppy way in a higher harmony to my existing voice. And in a lot of parts, especially because a lot of these lyrics in the, on the record are more melancholy or, uh, yeah, more melancholy. Um, um, plenty of the harmonies that I'm singing are actually lower harmonies or under the original melody, like a mm. third below or right, yeah. fourth or, or seventh below. Like I'm not singing uh, higher stuff where I feel it could sound like too overjoyous or it wouldn't fit the the lyric. Um, getting a melody to 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 work with a lyric, it's that gets overlooked sometimes, and it's important. Um, you can sing certain words a certain way. But I'll tell you, if you say, for instance, you're singing the lyric down, it never sounds good with an upward inflection of a melody on the word down. That's a, that's a simple, mm. that's a simple way of putting it, you know? <laughs> so you're, you're mindful about like, you're mindful about when a lyric is taking a melody or whether it might be drawing it away, whether it might be a little too sound, a little too happy or a little too mm-hmm. sad. You kind of want to, you know, maybe augment it or move it so that it fits the the lyric and it fits this fits the tone of 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 what you're saying. And I definitely, you know, you know not tried to do that with the, the the lead vocals, but with the backups as well. And 
most of those parts were all, you know, mapped out. I figured out, you know, okay, this is going to be the melody line and then we'll try, this is the harmony and then an octave of that harmony and then another harmony. And so when I went to, to Mike and when I went to Steve and all the parts had already been written and basically all I had to do was go, okay, sing this here and sing that there. And it needs this part here. And so the guys already had a roadmap of what to, what to put where. And that helped kind of move things along and probably saved a little frustration for them. But it also meant that I got, that I already knew what I was getting back. And so, because I had sort of already arranged stuff kind of the way I wanted to hear it, I knew that, well, you just put the right guys in the right place, tell them what to do and then trust that they'll do it. And that's exactly what they did. Hmm. Yeah. Well, awesome. I know we've kept you longer <laughs> than, yeah. uh, than you had time for, but, uh, that's all good. You want to hit any quick uh, Canada? Yeah. So I have a I have something a little a little fun, and this is just a brief um, little um, Canadian ranking. So I'm I'm gonna ask you um, about some iconic Canadian brands and artists, (laughs) and I want you to tell me your preference in a segment. I'm calling, does Steve Kravak love these snacks or does Stephen Bradley think these artists are badly? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, okay, so right. some, some iconic uh, foods and snacks from Canada and some other food brands. So um, starting with coffee, Tim Hortons or Second Cup Coffee Company? Ooh, uh, I'll go with Tim Hortons because it's just the tried and true and you can kind of get it everywhere. Okay, right on. Uh, ketchup chips or all dressed chips? <laughs> Neither. Neither? Plain, <laughs> plain, plain all the way. Plain salt, just salt, man. There's no need to mess up a perfectly good potato. I don't know how that ketchup thing came around and the all dressed thing. Sorry, buddy. That's for hot dogs. I mean, it's it's something that like the all dressed is just something that's starting to be introduced in the states. I don't feel like that's that's something that like any you know Americans like you know were like familiar with. It's uh, but it seems no. to be they don't they don't even know they don't even know where that comes from. Like, <laughs> so so like in in, in Montreal, um, hot dog joints are really really popular. Hmm. They're up and down St. Catherine Street and up and down St. Laurent Street. And they and they just do like simple like steamed hot dogs in a bun. And so when you go in and you ask them, how do, how do you want it? And you say, all dressed. And that's, that's, that's the code for onions, um, relish, and mustard. Hmm. And that's, that's, a, that's an all dressed dog. Except that in Montreal... You know, the French guys are behind the counter, so they say, well, do you want it all dress? So they don't say dress, it's all dress. All dress, <laughs> I like it. All dress, yeah. Yeah, but, but the chips are, are, it's a weird combination that somehow works for people. It's barbecue, ketchup, sour cream and onion, and salt and vinegar. So it's, I don't know, I, for some reason that works for people. I don't, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's a. Uh, just wrong. My palate no, maybe just, just isn't wrong. sophisticated. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, Joe Louis or Nanaimo bars? 
Oh, Nanaimo Bar all the way. I yeah. make it every year. Yeah, I make it every year for at Christmas. Mm. It's been like a, it's been a, a, a tradition in my family uh, ever since I was knee high to a grasshopper. So, <laughs> yeah, Nanaimo so, Bar, Nanaimo Bar is the best thing in the world. And like when I make it for my American friends and they yeah. have it, they're like, "This is the best thing in the world." Oh my God, how, how come we don't have this in America? <laughs> so can you can you break it down for for um, I'm I'm assuming we have a we have a handful of Canadian listeners, but for a majority of the for our non-Canadian listeners, can you explain what a Nanaimo Bar is? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's it's, it's actually pretty simple. It's a three-layered uh, sort of dessert. Uh, and it, it's made in a pan. You just throw the ingredients in the pan. And so the first layer is made up of uh, graham cracker crumbs, um, coconut, sh- shredded coconut, uh, crushed walnuts, uh, and, um, and cocoa, like powdered chocolate. Mm. And uh, you, fold some, you fold some butter into that and kind of mash it together. And it kind of makes a little bit of like a goopy like first layer. So you lay that down. And chill it, and then the next layer is a layer of. Um, uh, in Canada, we call it icing sugar. In America, it's called confectioner sugar. Okay. It's a layer layer of confectioner sugar uh, that's got some um, uh, that's got some custard powder in it, and uh, you basically you know mix the the icing sugar, the custard powder together. You add some milk and butter, and you make this sort of icing layer. So the second layer is an icing layer. And you put that in the fridge and you cool that. Then you make the top layer. And basically for the top layer, is like you take bittersweet chocolate and butter. You melt it on top of the in – a, in a pot, like in a bain-marie on the, on the stove. Mm-hmm. And you turn it into liquid chocolate. And then you coat the topping of the chilled dessert with the liquid oh, chocolate man. over this, the top of it. This sounds amazing. This place. It's, 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 he- <laughs> it's, it's heavenly because the, the bittersweet chocolate balances out the sweetness of the icing. And the coconut and the walnut – and the and the and the raw cocoa uh, don't make for a really sweet uh, base, so it's actually like a perfect combination, and you can just have piece after piece, and it's it is uh, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, no no apologies. It's, it does sound <laughs> unbelievable, especially when you consider uh, J- the Joe Louis kind of looks like a uh, it's sort of like more of a chocolate. Um, Twinkie of sorts. It doesn't. It, yeah. It's, yeah. But anyway, okay. So, uh, best poutine in BC: Fritz European Fry House or La Belle Patate? Mm. Well, the thing about poutine is I don't eat it. Okay. Uh. All so, right. Well, then. But, that... but 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 I'll go with La Belle Patate just because of the name. A beautiful potato. A beautiful potato. A place called the beautiful potato has to make a great poutine. There's just no two ways about it. Deal. All right. Um, Celine Dion or Sarah McLaughlin? Oh, um, I have actually, uh, I, um, I, 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 I think Sarah is the bee's knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah is an awesome singer. A uh, great songwriter. She's a great person. Mm. Uh, she's always surrounded herself with great musicians, uh, good talent in her uh, in her label at network. Um, uh, watching her come up through the, the system in Canada and grow into uh, uh, a star in Canada and in the states. 
yeah. as well uh, was a really, really positive thing. Um, when I lived up there, we used to run into each other every once in a while. Oh, I haven't nice. seen her in ages and ages. Um, hope she's doing well where she is. So Lynn, uh, you know, when I was back in Montreal cutting punk rock records, we could only get into the studios at nighttime because you, you couldn't afford the studios during the day. And one of the studios that we used to work at in Montreal was called, uh, uh, was called Victor. And uh, I can remember doing a record in there and um, she, Celine would be working in the room upstairs mm-hmm. uh, during, uh, uh, during the day. And so we'd kind of work downstairs and then we would, we would move up to the upstairs room after she, she'd leave and use the upstairs room and record there. But uh, uh, yeah, it was just a, kind of an odd thing. But yeah, ended up cutting a few records in <laughs> Montreal where she ended up working in the same studio at the same time. Funny. Cool. <laughs> wow. Uh, Planet Next Smash- album feature. <laughs> Planet, Smasher, Planet Smashers or the Flatliners? Planet Smashers. Planet Smashers. <laughs> I'll co-sign. Hope that hope that doesn't get me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe maybe this next maybe this next and last one will. Uh, Propagandi or DOA? You know, when I got to West Beach, that Propagandi record was always sitting on the on the mixing desk. And anytime anybody like wanted was mixing, they'd pull that record out and listen to it. People don't even realize how highly influential in America that record is for a Canadian punk rock band. Mm. Are you talking and, how to clean everything, or which? which yeah, how to, yeah, how to clean everything. And and yeah, people don't even realize like how influential a record that is down here. People absolutely love that record, and so my hats are off to those guys for like like breaking through and creating just like. A, a sound that was revered by so many. Um, DOA for me is like one of those bands you grow up with. Like mm-hmm. Joey and I went to the Joey and I went to the same high school. Like he graduated a few years before me. But that Hardcore eighty one record is, which was just recently awarded, like a Canadian uh, Music Industry Award for like like a. Um, like a lifetime achievement award or something for that record like classic records of canada the hardcore 81 record that is such an important record in 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 history at that time um what was going on in music how we were sort of switching from the punk rock sound to the hardcore sound um you know those first couple of do records doa records are just so close to my heart they're my they're my community band right they're the burnaby the, the north burnaby band the Vancouver punk rock band. So I got to go with DOA, but boy, Propagandy gets gets honorary mention yeah. um, for how to clean everything. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and, and just kind of like, I'm thinking about, Pro- I, I love Propagandy so, so much. And, and I'm thinking as I'm, as you're talking, you're talking about Propagandy and I'm thinking about their latest album, Victory Lap, how, they they also I'm thinking about slick shoes because like how like th- this new propaganda record infused some like kind of metally kind of riffs in it and so I'm right. like I'm thinking I don't know maybe maybe slick shoes will like ha- take you know you maybe it'll be like a 
a, a victory lap style album with just a punk, you know, some punk rock infused with some some metal riffage. Um, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of flavors on it that are going to kind of surprise people. And um, I uh, we're still a little ways away from the finish line, so there are going to be changes, and you know, there's going to be more ideas more fresh stuff thrown down I'm, I'm really hoping that it's going to be an exciting record that uh, that is going to connect with people i know we're i know that we're having a blast making it like when we're getting together and working together at the studio it's it's a really good time so just the just the the spirit of things is demonstrating that we're going in the right direction cool 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 steve thank you so much for all your no time problem. and um so i want to encourage everybody to uh, go to porterhouserecords.com to pick up a copy of um, uh, Steve's album, Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. You can get it on, um, I have it on Baby Blue Vinyl. Uh, it's it's a great record. It looks beautiful. Um, you got all the liner notes. You have a picture of Steve looking classy as hell on the inside <laughs> in a suit. <laughs> um, and any other Porterhouse records that uh, people uh, that you mentioned that people can pick up. I'm assuming they can also snag at PorterhouseRecords.com, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the 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 Summer Bliss Autumn Tears record is streaming all the time at the at the site so folks can go over and hear it anytime 24 7 listen to the whole thing anytime uh and um there are uh on my artist page there there are links for all the social media goings on and websites etc so if folks want to follow along on twitter or insta or whatever they can they can snap on those links and get set up there and uh, yeah, the vinyl's there. You can buy it digitally, or you can just stream it and listen to it in the comfort of your own home as you wish. Oh, so and I one more question: Are you gonna are you gonna do any shows? Are you gonna tour at all on this? Are you gonna you you know come out and play on this record? Um, I've already done two shows. Um, played San Diego and played L.A. Uh, just as the record was coming out, the, the the week that the record came out, and so I played with a few. Um, I played uh, uh, I played at Casbah uh, in San Diego and played at uh, the Redwood in L.A. And I put together a band with a few friends of mine um, who I'll hopefully begin working with again soon. I'd like to do some more live stuff. And uh, actually, Richard Lloyd from the band Television was able to play in my band on oh. those two shows. Oh, so, cool. so that was that was a really really positive thing to. Uh, to work with Richard. I'm a big fan of his work on the Matthew Sweet records. Um, and uh, so it was pretty awesome to uh, have him come out and play those shows with us. Um, so yeah, I've gotten it un under my belt a couple of times. Uh, I was practicing today, so we'll see what happens, but um, get that med Midwest, get, get some of those Midwest shows. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. We would well, we'd love to, we'd love to have you out here in in Minneapolis or Chicago or or wherever um, right. wherever you want to be. Well, I got lots of favorite bands from out there. Husker Du came from out there. Yeah, that's right. The, the, 
the replacements came from out there. Straight. came from out there. <laughs> naked, naked Ray Gun. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of good bands. A lot of good bands from the Midwest. For sure. Midwest always has is, Midwest has always had its own sound too. So yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I I probably mind that a little bit on my record as well. Who knows? I love it. <laughs> well, everyone, buy Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. Steve, you're the best. Everybody send him some Nanaimo bars. Um, <laughs> also, I want to say you're low-key hilarious on your Twitter. Like if Yeah, good follow. <laughs> people should follow people should follow you for your one-liners on Twitter. I'm I think uh, you're 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 funny as hell. So <laughs> I, I, I love I love Twitter. Um, <laughs> I've, I'm, I'm not doing as much on Facebook as I used to. I really like that short burst thing about Twitter. I like the broadcast aspect of it. If you're just throwing stuff out there. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think, I think it's, I, and I think a lot of folks that have skills in humor uh, and, and writing are using it as a platform and they're using it effectively to, to, to kind of make the world a better place. So I'm, I'm all for Twitter. I like being on there and to try to follow back folks if they get on. So uh, definitely hit me up on the Twitter kids. Do it. <laughs> awesome. Do it. Thank you so much. Thanks Steve. Steve. You bet, guys. Take good care now. You too. Later. Best of Bye. luck with everything. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Steve Kravak. That was an amazing interview. Yeah. Um, he's a, what a guy. What a guy. What a legend. Legend. Mensch. Yeah. Um, everybody, do yourselves a favor. Go stream this album. Go buy this album. Um, support. Support. You know, indie. Indie record labels. Yeah. Totally. Um. Yeah, it was a great conversation and wide ranging, and uh, you know, I feel like we could have. I feel like we could have kept talking. <laughs> you know, I feel for sure. Like, like we, he, you know, we had like a, a limited amount of time, but I feel like he gave us even more than than we had discussed. Definitely. So that's the Magpod way. We just that is. keep you dragging on. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I might just give him a call later and, and talk some more. Um, he, uh, you know, he's a guy that uh, is a pretty significant figure for us uh, yes. on this podcast. And, you know, he's just such a, a great guy. And uh, it was really a great conversation. And it was really fun talking to him. So, yeah, they say never meet your heroes. And then sometimes you have a, a great conversation with them and it all works out. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm yeah, I feel like uh, talking to Steve Kravak only reinforced like, man, what a we got to get Kravak back. We got to get, we got to, this is officially <laughs> hashtag Kravak back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let us know what you thought about that conversation. Uh, if you've got thoughts about uh, Steve's uh, work or his new record or anything else, uh, you can share that over on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can uh, give us a rating or review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That would really help us out. Smash that subscribe button wherever you do, which also helps us out a lot. Yeah. Uh, you can also share thoughts at uh, magnifiedpod at gmail.com. Hey, why don't you leave us a voicemail at 872-762-4763, 872-7-MAGPOD. Let us know what you think about Sarah McLaughlin and the Planet Smashers. <laughs> he had some solid anecdotes about everybody. He's like, I know, I right? hanging out with Sarah, hanging out with Celine. <laughs> Celine? Yeah. I don't uh, know. Have I been saying her name wrong for the past I mean, like 30 years? I think we got to defer to the French uh, speakers The French, the French one, pronunciation. So. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I was trying, I did my best. I had to look up the pronunciation of La Belle Patette because <laughs> I did, does solid work I, right did, I didn't want to you know I've heard him speak French on Mike's 
Mike's podcast. So I'm like, uh-huh. I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass myself. No, that's uh, that's going to be my nickname for you from now on. Also <laughs> the beautiful potato. <laughs> yeah. <the> belle potato. <laughs> um, <laughs> support LaBelle Patet and I over at patreon.com slash magnified pod. You can pick up our merch at magnifiedpod.storeenvy.com. And uh, thanks to our shadow producer on Original Vinyl. And thanks to Heavy Ordnance Studios and Danny Lurie for our artwork. Well, time is winding down. But only for this episode. We want you to be found enjoying the next episode when we'll discuss Jesus of Nazareth. I grew up on your fields. We stole from neighborhood stores. Rode our bikes into the night leaves in the dawn I want to go back there myself and see but there's things up there I know